Isaiah 42, 1 to 10. Hear the word of God. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, and that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, and his praise from the ends of the earth. As the grass withers and the flower fades, there is God's holy and errant word, and may he bring his blessing to it. It's very rich to read verse 10 at the end of that text that speaks about the new work and the glorious work that God has promised to do through his servant. Uh, we are looking in the next uh, few Sundays at the four servant songs of Isaiah, and they are found in Isaiah 42, what we have just read, and Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7, Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 10, and Isaiah 52, verse 13, all the way to the end of chapter 53, verse 12. They're known as songs because the the poetry uh, in which they are writ written is very much in, in tandem with the Psalms. And, and, and it has that rhythm, if you will, uh, to be sung. Each one of these songs are poetic prophecies pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pertaining very specifically to the humanity of Christ. His, his humanity and his earthly ministry that he came to accomplish as the Messiah, as the Christ. Now there is indeed a mystery to these passages that Israel, when they would read them up to the time of Christ, they would consider them to be prophecies that were pointing to earthly figures that already existed. They didn't embrace them as prophecies that were speaking to the Christ himself. And they struggled to grasp those things. Because just as he speaks here about, Behold my servant whom I uphold, and how this servant is going to come 
and rescue those who are in the prison house. And a, a few chapters later, God speaks of Cyrus being his servant. And, and in some ways you could see Israel saying, well, God here is talking about our, our earthly deliverance, our political, economic deliverance that, that we need. And Cyrus is going to be the servant that's going to bring it. And, and so they, they lost the sight of Christ for the sake of their most immediate and physical and temporal and earthly needs of deliverance. They actually spoke to the Messiah. One who would not come for another 700 years. And, and Israel, uh, in, in receiving these prophecies, were, were given them so that when the Christ came, they would be able to look and say, It's Him. This is the servant of God. <laughs> but you know, you read the Gospels and you realize they missed it. They couldn't see whether it's the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest or both. <laughs> they missed it because they were consumed with their earthly existence and not so concerned with their eternal existence. But that these do speak of Christ we know. For in the New Testament, the Lord himself acclaims these words to himself. If you were to go to Matthew chapter 12, you would see the, that these are applied directly to Christ as he is dealing with the Pharisees, as he is dealing with their blindness and dealing with their stubbornness and dealing with their legalism and their self-righteousness and really abandoning in their own hearts the need for the Messiah who had been promised. And in the midst of this, Jesus was withdrawing from them and multitudes followed him. I'm reading from verse 15 of Matthew 12 onward. And he, he warned them, he said, don't, as he healed so many people, he warned them not to make him known because... It was to be fulfilled. Not that Jesus was looking, okay, I better make sure this part is fulfilled. But the, the point of that Messiah who would come, the servant of God who would come, it was to be fulfilled that here is one who was not wanting to have that loud and boisterous voice, who wasn't trying to call attention to himself. That he was the servant whom God had chosen, in whom God's soul was well pleased, and in whom the Spirit of God had been set upon. And you see Matthew applying those words from Isaiah 42 directly to Christ. In a time when those who should have laid hold of Christ as the Messiah refused to, even rejected him. This is all about embracing Christ, Christ Jesus, embracing Christ incarnate, understanding God has indeed sent his servant and Jesus is the one who fulfills these words and him coming in the flesh was that very particular purpose to be the one, that very servant of God who would come and accomplish so great a salvation. While so many looked for that temporal, political, economic deliverance, 
God's focus. And this is the, this is the joy of reading these songs of Isaiah. God's focus was on the reality of our spiritual bondage and our need for eternal deliverance. And that's always the joy we have when we're reading these things. As we see, God is the one who is saying, what I am concerned with most for you is your eternal salvation. I've said this before. I know I have some things that I repeat. But this is one of those things that that I always feel it's something of that character of God that falls upon us as Christians when we are dealing with loved ones who know the gospel, who know the way of life and truth, who know and have experienced aspects of worship and the presence of the Spirit, and yet who have turned away from it and have gone into the world, whose heart is burdened for their eternal salvation. Is it they themselves who have known and heard so much and have cast it off and counted it a a ridiculous thing that they don't need to give attention to? All they're concerned about is their life here on earth. Is it the souls that we as parents, we as siblings, we as friends look and mourn and lament and yearn for and pray for? Because we know And what they need is not this fun, pleasurable, comfortable life in this world. Enjoying the pleasures of sin. What they need is deliverance from their spiritual bondage. And deliverance from eternal damnation. And that's what you're going to see as we go through these four songs. You're going to see the heart of God acclaiming his servant who has come. To deliver his people. And how these are fulfilled in Christ. Christ who became a man. Christ who became the the sin bearer for his people. And one of the first things that we see about this servant who would come. And who would come as a man. Is that this servant came to serve The Father first and foremost. You see that with with verse 1. How God declares and calls us to behold my servant whom I uphold. My elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. There's some amazing things here. To consider in respect of the humanity of Jesus Christ. But here here is where we see these words must apply to Christ. Must apply to him and him alone. Even though we might want to say well, well God had other human servants that could have fulfilled these things. Some as I said already would look to Isaiah 45 and say does this speak of Cyrus? And We know it doesn't. And how do we know that it doesn't? How do we know that this isn't speaking about Israel's kings? Or how how do we know this isn't speaking about Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus or Darius or all the other pagan kings who were raised up by God to fulfill certain purposes towards Israel? It's because of who this servant is. 
This is a servant in whom God is able to see, say, this is the elect one, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. This is a man like no other. This is the reality of one, a servant, who, whose unspotted desire was for the glory and the will of God in everything. And God could look at him and say, I delight in this person. Tell me a man whom God could say that without question in all things. And there is none. There are times when God would find a, a soul that was righteous like Noah or like Moses. And God would say, here's one like David, a man after God's own heart. But boy, we read of times where God did not delight in them. <laughs> Don't you find it incredible with, with Noah that the first thing that we read of him after he comes out of the flood is he gets drunk, lies naked in the tent, and his sons bring shame, as his son Ham brings shame. You know, all the no, noble acts and works and labors he gave himself to, and, and he falls flat at the end. But Moses. And for all that he was able to do, his beginning wasn't so noble, was it? <laughs> and his ending, <laughs> he wouldn't hallow God. And others, and David, a man after God's own heart. <laughs> and boy, you would wonder why God didn't strike him dead for the depths of his sins. But here is a servant whose coming is is coming with an unspotted desire to do and accomplish the glory and will of God in everything. And God is saying, I am going to uphold him in such a manner that his sinlessness would be seen by all. And he was so blessed by the Father. And again, we know this is Christ because these words are echoed twice concerning Christ. In Matthew 3.17 and in Matthew 17.5. When Jesus is baptized and when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. What is the voice of heaven crying out? This is my son in whom I have great pleasure. This is my son in whom my soul delights. The righteous one. Well, those words could not be said of any other man except for Christ. You look at, as I mentioned, such men like Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. Every one of them were beset by chronic willful sin except for Jesus. He alone, without sin. I don't believe we fathom the nature of that character of Christ, of what it was for him to be without sin, and how that translated into his service to God. But we know this, his sinlessness and his being upheld by, by the Father in all of his earthly life, except for that moment on the cross, when Jesus there was doing the will of the Father 
in dying for the sins of his people. Do you know it could be said of Christ that here was a man who enjoyed unbroken union and communion with the Father. And you know, we're, we're, we're prone to say, well, that's because he's the Son of God. <laughs> we're prone at that point to go and point to his divine nature and say, that's why he had unbroken union and communion with God. But this is speaking of his humanity. I don't think we understand how important that is to be said of Christ in his humanity, in all that he was able to to experience and endure in the wickedness of this world for him to remain sinless. How did he do that? Well, the Father equipped him. I have put my spirit upon him. This again is one of the the mysteries to, to understand. But in his humanity, Jesus was so filled with the Spirit that he walked in the Spirit a sinless, blameless life and never had broken union and communion with the Father in his humanity. It's what makes him the perfect sacrifice for us Men and women, from conception to baptism, to his temptation in the desert, to his public ministry, he lived, moved, walked, had his being in his humanity, in the power of the Spirit. And even as he offered himself up unto death, it wasn't his divine nature that was helping him to do that. And I know this is hard for us to understand, but he had those two natures in in perfect union within the one person, Jesus Christ, but he wasn't using his divine nature to do this. It was through the eternal spirit that Jesus offered himself up without spot. To God. There's a reason for that. And even in his resurrection, all three persons indeed had uh, the, their, their place within the resurrection of Christ. But we again are, are made aware in, in 1 Peter 3 that he was made alive in the Spirit. Jesus' entire human incarnate life on earth was lived in perfect obedience through total dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And you say, why is that important? Because that's how Adam was supposed to live before God and fail. That's how we are called to live before God in Christ. He had to be one with us. In all things. That's a mystery, isn't it? But it's an important mystery to understand. His divine nature was necessary, and we're going to hear why it was necessary. But his human nature was lived out in the power of the Spirit. And God placed his Spirit upon him for him to bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Jesus' whole purpose 
in living this sinless, perfect, obedient life to God in the power of the Spirit was so that He could bring forth justice. So that He could remedy the fall of man. So that He could right the wrong that Adam had brought upon all of humanity and into all of creation. He's going to bring justice. He's not simply going to serve justice. He's not going to only accomplish that justice necessary for our forgiveness, but in in serving justice, he's going to right the wrong. You might think, well, what's the difference? Uh, I'll give you an analogy. This is a, a time early on when we lived in Nova Scotia in New Minas, and twice I had my vehicle broken into. Once was my own fault. I left the doors unlocked. If you could call that my own fault, it is my property and people shouldn't be going into it anyways. But I had it broken into once. They left the doors open. I had a dead battery in the morning and I kicked myself a few times. But the second time, it wasn't my fault. I had a broken window. All the CDs and, and whatever. And there was probably about $30 worth of coin because we... Up to that point, just dumped all our coin into that little cup. How many of you do that? (laughs) Don't. It's very tempting. But we lost about $200 in cash, and I had to spend about $150, $180, something like that, to get the window fixed. I reported that break-in, and the police caught the two individuals who were responsible. And they called me. And this is the conversation I had with them. They called me and said, we got the guys. We wanted to let you know that we got them. And uh, we thank you for letting us know because this will add to uh, the prosecution that they committed several crimes. And I said, great. I said, so uh, am I going to get the $350 back? (laughs) No. Why not? Well, if you want that, you're going to have to take them through civil court. But as they always say in those cases, but your insurance should cover it. I said, no, it doesn't. I have a deductible. I said, what? and I asked the police officer, why aren't they being compelled by the court to pay back what is owed? And he said, that's not the responsibilities of the court. Now, is that justice? The responsibility of the court is only punitive justice. Or now, as it is in our justice system, they're more concerned about rehabilitating criminals rather than righting the wrongs. But this is where Jesus is coming in his humanity to be that servant of God who is going to bring forth justice that isn't simply dealing just with the punitive damages that we have before God, but the restoration of all the wrong to make it right. Isn't that glorious? He will right the wrong. Christ has come in his humanity both to serve justice and bring forth righteousness to repair what was broken. And he did this. This is the servant of God. He did this to serve the Father in this way. Before, as we see secondly in verses 2 to 3, before he comes to serve us, He serves the Father's justice and serves us. And he serves us again in his humanity. 
You read in verses 2 to 3, He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. Smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. There's justice again. Only this is being applied to us. And here we, we see the character of Christ in his humanity. A character, my dear friends, that ought to be envied by us all. Here's the true man. The true man who did not seek publicity. My, oh my. How uh, even within the church, how easily drawn we are to entertainers and flashy figures trying to grasp people's attention. It's a proneness that we have in our sinfulness. We want that flashy guy. Jesus didn't want it. It's, again, one of those very profound things to witness that whenever Jesus said to the demons, do not speak about me, they obeyed immediately. But whenever he said that to people that he healed, do not speak about me, go to the priests, they didn't obey. Isn't there irony there? That the evil ones feared Christ, knew his divinity, and obeyed him instantly. But the people who perceived his divinity but saw his humanity did not. His character shone through as a gentle, lowly servant to save his people given to him by the Father. And it speaks there in verse 3 of how a, a bruised reed he will not break, smoking flax he will not quench. Uh, he's not here to extinguish life, much unlike us. I don't know about you, but I'm sure we've got two little boys here tonight. But I can recall times when I was not much older than them that it was, it was one of those things if you saw something that was somewhat rotten or whatever, you'd want to go up and see if you could break it in half. It was just one of those joys where you'd get down to the marsh and you'd see the cattails and you're just like, I'm going to rip this reed off and, and, and take it away uh, until we grew up and realized those were illegal things to do. You're not supposed to uh, terrorize cattails, apparently. But, but if there's a something that needs to be extinguished, boy, we're quick to do it. What do you do when you see an anthill? What do most of us little boys do when we see an anthill? Stomp on it. Yeah. Let's see how many of them we can kill before they go up our legs. Yeah. The nature of our heart. The nature of our fallen heart. We're not gentle people. We marvel when we see it in people, don't we? There's a rarity when you're able to look at someone and say, there's a gentle soul. They're precious, but they're rare. <laughs> but here is Christ, the true and perfect man, the servant of God, coming to serve his people. And he's coming to people who are broken. People who are bruised by the fall. People who are battered by sin. People whose life is quenched. And here comes the true man who would love his neighbor better than himself. Not as himself. Better than himself. 
It's a marvelous thing to look at the ministry of Christ as exhausted as he was at times. Even what you would read in Matthew 12 when he said to those he healed, he said, don't tell anyone that I'm here. And they went out and told people and people came flocking to Christ and he in his exhaustion, we read time and again in the Gospels, he healed every one of them. His heart went out in pity to those who were broken. His heart was broken in grief as he stood at Lazarus' tomb to see death, the death of a friend. He loved his neighbor. He was a gentle, lowly servant. And you read on to Isaiah 61, and you see this, this is the presentation of Christ the very words that he owns to himself. He, he's the one who says, let me give you hope, you who are bankrupt by sin. Let me bind your wounds, you who are broken hearted. Come to me, you weary, heavy laden souls. I am gentle and lowly. I will give you rest. That's not what we would do to a bruised or bent reed or a smoking flax. Why was he like this? Because this is the true man that honors and serves God, that lays hold of that second table of God's law and looks to people and says, I will love you with the love of God in absolute truth and righteousness. And he had to do that. Because he was serving us in greater ways. Not just in that way of loving a bruised and broken man. But he was serving us knowing that it was his character that was now going to be formed in us. Isn't that marvelous? And he had to accomplish that character in real life. Which he did. And to serve us. My dear friends, we talk about imitating Christ. If there's anything that needs to be imitated of Christ, it is this. A character of gentleness and lowliness to all people who are broken, who are smoldering, who are in need of pity, not judgment who are in need of healing and not casting off. And here Jesus exemplifies it. And if there was ever a time that he exemplified it the most, it was the time in the upper room on the eve of his crucifixion. when he bent the knee and washed the feet of all his disciples, Judas included. So interesting, that chapter, John 13, begins with those words. He loved his own and loved them to the end. And that spoke of Judas as well. When he met Judas in the garden, what did he say to him? Why have you come, my friend? There's the character of our God who has come in the flesh to serve us. There's the character of the true man that he is forming in us. And he came as well to serve under trial. You read in verse 4 where he speaks about 
He will not fail. This is God speaking of his son. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastland shall wait for his law. Very, again, interesting that the Hebrew word for fail in verse 4 is the same as the word for smoking in verse 3. A reed that's ready to go, go out. And the word discouraged in verse 4 is the same Hebrew word as bruised in verse 3. That even as he comes to deal with bruised and smoking people who are whose life is is near to extinguishing, he himself will not be broken or discouraged. He will not fail and become bruised. He and it's and in that light when you see that it's speaking about a man who is serving under trial, who is serving under the same duress and facing the same trials and greater trials than any of us would ever encounter. He would not be broken or crushed. He would not be quenched or extinguished. He would win the day. And again, as as the servant of God, he had to live his life under these trials. He could not go through his humanity without being faced with the temptations of Satan, without being faced with the hatred of the world, without being faced with the sinfulness of mankind. Because we don't walk in this world that way, do we? And we needed such a Savior who could come and say to us, I know your trials. I know your sufferings. You might think, oh God, this is the worst. How could you let me go through this? You know, as a pastor, you hear so many things in people's lives and you just, man, you feel broken with them. And they think sometimes God doesn't understand. Christ does. He, He was innocent. And he was beaten. Whipped to... To shreds. He was crucified. But even more. In his trial. In in his enduring of these things. He experienced. That separation from God. That he didn't deserve. That he really didn't want. But had to go through. And endure what it is to be forsaken by God. So that you could be redeemed. And he did that in his humanity. Doesn't that strike you as incredible? So that he could say to you, dear people of God, I have spoken these things to you that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. How has he overcome the world? He has endured all the heavy, weighty trials of this world to their bitter end without sinning in order that he might be the one to supply to us the grace and strength that we need to endure this even in our sinfulness. Isn't that amazing? This is our God. Jesus served under trial to overcome the world 
to remove from us the vanity and hopelessness of the tribulation we endure. And he did this in his humanity in the power of the Spirit. That's, that's, that's what's incredible. And last, just very, very quickly, it goes from verses 5 to 10. Jesus served the Father. He served uh, his people. He served under trial. But he also served the world. And, and you see that, that God has taken this man to be a light to the Gentiles, a covenant to the people, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, to those who sit in darkness from the prison house. He's come to bring the glory of this grace of God and salvation to the whole world. He's got a mission. And the thing is, is he's engaged us in this mission. And this is the song that we are singing to the Lord. Uh, his praise to the ends of the earth. God's good news has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The very God who took to himself our humanity, our image, in order to redeem us, to make us a people who would be conformed and transformed into his image. Isn't that marvelous? I don't know how else to say it. It's just a marvelous thing to see the work of God's grace, the servant of God, sent to accomplish this. Do you know this Jesus? Is your heart indeed looking to the one who has come to redeem you and to transform you into that true image of man? Look to Christ. He is the only way, the only truth in life. Let us pray.